Welcome back to another volume of Truly Disturbing Tales from Reddit. Today we're going to be narrating three new unsettling stories taken directly from the platform. I encourage you all to sit back, grab a snack, and enjoy these terrifying personal accounts. Now, without any further delay, let's jump right in. I'm currently in a professional graduate program for psychology, and in my mid-twenties. I met this guy, I'll call him Nate, at the start of the academic year, and thought that he was very well put together, charming, and sensitive. He was very good at group exercises where we practiced counseling skills. He had this way with his words, and came off as deeply compassionate. When we first met, I got a strange feeling off of him that I couldn't quite put my finger on. However, he was super charismatic, with a trusting face and a dazzling smile, so it caused me to let my guard down. One weekend, we were drinking and watching movies at a mutual friend's house with a small group of people. Nate was very flirty with me and wanted to take shots with me in particular, which my friend Mia had noticed. I was later told that he was saying how badly he wanted to hook up with me. By midnight, I was admittedly very drunk and warm and wanted to go change out of my sweater. While I was completely topless, I caught a glimpse of someone walking by from the corner of my eye. Thinking it was just someone walking to the bathroom, I didn't pay much attention. But then I noticed the person come back and peer through the doorway again. Fortunately, Mia had come to check on me moments before and saw Nate looking into the room while I was unclothed. She blocked me from his view and yelled at him to get out. I was confused because I thought I had imagined it, even though Mia saw him too. Nate later said that I misperceived the situation, and I believed it, simply burying the incident in my mind. Now before you judge me or anyone else for not coming forward sooner, just know that this man is the king of gaslighting and was able to manipulate all of our professors who were experienced doctors of psychology. After that evening, Mia told me exactly why she didn't want to leave me alone to go get changed. Apparently, weeks before, she had been at a party with Nate, where he attempted to take advantage of a drunk girl who could barely walk straight. He would have assaulted her, but his roommate heard what was going on and stopped him. This resulted in an hour-long argument between Nate and the roommate, before he agreed to leave the barely conscious girl alone. Then another woman came forward. She was in a relationship with Nate for two months and set boundaries in their sex life because she was saving herself for marriage. But Nate wasn't quite so willing to accept this. One night, after hanging out at the girl's apartment, she fell asleep on her couch, only to awake to Nate attempting to remove her pajama bottoms as she slept. She reiterated that she wasn't wanting to have sex with him, to which he responded with what he was doing was, quote, normal and an expectation within a relationship. As she regained her senses, he attempted to go even further before she made her way from the couch to the bathroom, locking herself inside and demanding that he leave. Before exiting, though, he made sure to tell her that she was making a huge mistake by letting him walk out the door. Another classmate, who was emotionally vulnerable at the time, dated Nate for about four weeks 
and said that he constantly projected, gaslit, and manipulated her. When she confronted him about the concern she had about his alleged behavior towards women, not knowing the exact severity of it, he berated her for being abusive to him, for bringing up things that happened, quote, years ago, which is a line that he used on multiple women. And it also makes me think that he has past allegations beyond the ones that I'm sharing. He justifies all of his behavior, no matter how egregious, and claims that he is actually the victim. The only person that tried to stand up to Nate, his roommate, was discredited and retaliated against by him. He made sure no one would take her seriously and intimidated and manipulated her into not reporting the incident and remaining quiet. He has lied to and deceived people to discredit his victims and uses people's personal information and compassion against them. Unfortunately, the professors and managers only see the mask he wears and they all seem to love him. I'm honestly scared of Nate and believe he is gaining the power of psychology as a means to take advantage of vulnerable people and fulfill his own ego. I know in my gut that he will continue to hurt women, including future patients and students. He has his next hunting ground set too. He was appointed the training assistant of a counseling skills class where first year students disclose personal information in order to practice therapy skills. Most of his students will be young, compassionate women who won't know what hit them. I'm terrified. So I brought this information along with witnesses and tons of hard evidence to the committee that investigates misconduct. They are taking it very seriously and it sounds like this motherfucker actually might be expelled and unable to practice psychology in the nation. This would be the best possible outcome but he was tipped off that women in our class, including me, are involved in a report against him. He's emotionally unstable and has a history of retaliation, so that's not great. He has already sent me a text saying that he needs to talk to me before, quote, things get out of hand. At this moment, he thinks there is no way he will be held accountable for his actions, and I truly think that he believes he's done nothing wrong but he has no idea how strong our case is. He's going to find out how f***ed he is when they notify him of the formal complaint. Then it's only a matter of time before he finds out that I initiated the process that's going to bring him down. Kind of scary, but it feels all worth it. Nate is the ultimate wolf in sheep's clothing, and it's terrifying to think he could have become a counselor with that much power over vulnerable women. I can't believe a person like this exists, and I'm glad so many women have come forward to stop him. Update. Reading back on this post is like I'm reading someone else's writing. There was too much I didn't know and just wasn't prepared for. So much happened after this that it deserves its own post. But long story short, another survivor, Sophia, not her real name, and I went forward and participated in a Title IX misconduct hearing against Nate. The university found him in violation of multiple sexual misconduct violations, including sexual assault, non-consensual intercourse, and sexual harassment in my case. For reasons unknown, they went against the recommended sanction for sexual assault, which is expulsion, 
and gave him a four-year university suspension. My guess is that they did this to protect him under the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, which would therefore protect the institution. Also, the friend who tipped him off about the investigation was in fact the classmate who was, quote, emotionally vulnerable at the time. Turns out, she was a secondary aggressor who was in an on-again, off-again relationship with Nate and befriended me in order to help Nate manipulate and keep tabs on me. We even signed on to an apartment with a third roommate together. A week before the hearing, I discovered that her and Nate were secretly dating and that she gave him our new address as well as other private information. She did so much worse, but it ended with her moving out upon our request, only to move into another apartment within the same complex, then harassing and stalking me and another friend involved too. I was moving forward and trying to put it all behind me, but then a few months ago, Sophia and I discovered in separate incidents that Nate was working for two mental health jobs in our city. One of them was a mental health clinic that specializes in domestic and sexual violence. Sophia and I met up with a lawyer to discuss what we could legally do. We decided to file anonymous reports with our state's licensing board and reach out to his work's HR with his misconduct violations. The HR that I spoke to was a domestic violence counselor who had a similar experience to me, so she seemed genuine when she said she believed me and took this seriously. Of course, I know by now to proceed with caution in terms of hopes and expectations. The situation was traumatic, and something tells me I might not have seen the last of Nate, but I'm stronger and older now. I see things through a more realistic lens, and have learned how to accept things that seem impossible to get past. I know that one day, Nate is going to slip up so badly that he won't be able to get away with it anymore. I just hope that our work will make a difference for the next person that tries to stop him. This happened two nights ago, and I haven't been to sleep since, thinking that this guy is coming back for me. I've spoken to the police already, and they sent a car out to do a patrol, but nothing else has happened, which I'm thankful for. I don't know if I'm overreacting, but... This situation really has me freaked out. At about 11 p.m., I was taking my dog out for a pre-bed poop. I happen to live in a semi-urban neighborhood where very few people are out after the streetlights come on at night. As I was walking, a man came out of an alleyway towards me as I walked past. He said, Excuse me, miss. And my dog and I both got a fright. And then she started going off on him like I've never seen her do before. She's a pretty little rescue border collie retriever who can be reactive to people, so sometimes barks and panics. But this was something else entirely. She was going absolutely ballistic, lunging, growling, barking and snapping at him like she was ready to rip his face off. At first, I thought it was because he gave her a scare, but as soon as I looked back at him, my stomach dropped and I had an instant sick feeling telling me that I needed to get away. There was nothing particularly scary looking about him, but something deep inside me was telling me to run. I told him it'd probably be best not to come any closer. I said that my dog was dangerous 
and she would bite him. But he just kept coming closer. As he was saying, let me come closer, over and over again, as he kept inching towards us. My dog finally planted herself between he and I, and that's when he said, do you know where 456 Main Street is? This question sends a cold shiver all the way through me, because that was my address. I had never seen this man before in my life, but somehow he just managed to pull my address out of thin air. I told him I had no idea where that was, and then to scare him off, I told him again that he needed to leave because my dog would attack him if he got any closer. But he just kept saying, let me come closer, as I backed away. Once there was a little space between us and the guy, we turned and bolted towards an area of the neighborhood that had more street lamps and a higher chance of having other people out. But I didn't run back towards my house, lest I give this guy a chance to not only see where I lived, but also so I wouldn't lead him right to it. I remember glancing over my shoulder as we began to run, thinking that if this guy chased after us, that I'd at least want to know what I was up against. But he never flinched. As we took off, he stayed planted. Once we landed at the spot where I felt it was safe to stop, I turned and looked again, only to see nothing and no body behind us. I called my housemate and told her to make sure that the doors were locked. Then I waited under the streetlight until she came out and met me. Even as I'm telling this, I hope to high heavens that that man just pulled a random address out of thin air and it just so happened to be mine, but I don't like the chances of that though. The game he was running, I have no clue. How he got my address, I'm not sure. Was I going to let that creep get any closer to me and my dog? Absolutely the f not. Back in September of 2002, my wife was in her seventh month of pregnancy with our first child. We lived in Ohio at the time, and she wanted a baby shower. Since most of her family and close friends lived in Baltimore, Maryland, we planned that we would travel to Baltimore and have the baby shower there on Saturday October 19th, 2002. But October 3rd and 4th brought the horrifying realization that a serial killer was on the loose in the Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area. We naturally re-examined our plans, but decided to go through with them all the same. After all, the likelihood of being this sniper's victim was practically zero from a statistical point of view. My wife and I listened to the news of the Beltway Sniper in the days leading up to our trip. It was getting a bit more scary, as the death count climbed to nine, and there were two additional people who had been wounded. In the eleventh hour, we decided that we would still go, but we would take the Pennsylvania Turnpike over to I-70, and then I-70 through Hagerstown, Maryland, then Frederick, Maryland, and into Baltimore. Around 5 p.m. on Friday, October 18, 2002, my wife and I picked up my mom and my stepsister, and we set out for Baltimore together. The trip was going slowly, but was otherwise uneventful. We had used the time to review the plans of what to do when we needed to stop during our trip out. The plan was that we all go together. We don't dilly-dally. 
We get out of the car and into a building quickly and vice versa. No one was to stay in the car alone. Well, as happens eventually, around 12.45 a.m. on Saturday morning, we all needed a restroom break. We pulled off into a rest stop near Frederick and parked right in front of the door to the bathroom facility. The rest area was largely empty, but there was a dark blue, late-model four-door sedan parked head-in, facing the door to the restroom. I parked next to it, and we all quickly reviewed the rules. If I were to finish first, I would wait for them, and we would all return to the car together. We then got out and raced to the restrooms. As I ran into the restroom area, I didn't pay too much attention to the car we parked next to, other than to make sure they didn't open their doors the same time we did. The night itself was crisp, cool, and full of moisture. I of course finished first, and then I stood out by the exit, but stayed inside the building. The doors and the walls were all glass, so I nervously scanned the parking lot for anything that may have looked off. Satisfied that there was nothing ominous in the parking lot, I turned my attention to the blue sedan. I travel a lot, so I naturally took note that their license plates were from New Jersey. In the front seat were two African-American males. The one behind the steering wheel was middle-aged. He was awake and staring right back at me. Next to him was a sleeping teenager. I remember feeling a chill go down my spine as I watched him watching me. At this time, the authorities hadn't released info on the sniper, and they didn't know of the ominous role that a car played in their killing spree. So I was ignorant of the danger that these two really presented. A few minutes passed before my family returned and we all ran back to the car. In a flash, we sped away and continued on to our destination. Although I remember noticing something weird about their trunk. My family was poor growing up, so we sometimes had to pop out a broken lock and couldn't afford to fix it right away. So we would rig the trunk to open using a screwdriver. I remember thinking that's what they must have done with their trunk. Although, it turns out, the hole in their trunk was to shoot out of while staying concealed. The baby shower went well and my wife had fun. We didn't go out for meals, but slept and ate at her mom's house in Baltimore. On Sunday morning, it was time to head home. We took a much more northern route going home just to be safe. About a week or so later, once they had captured the Beltway snipers, you can imagine the renewed chills running down my spine when in the newspaper, the face of the man that had been staring at me when we stopped to pee at the rest stop, John Allen Muhammad, was staring back at me once again. There was also a photo of the car we had parked right next to. And scarier still, the reports that they had been captured in the exact same rest stop where we had parked next to them about a week earlier. I can only assume that the teenage boy that had been asleep next to him was Lee Boyd Malvo. Fortunately, they were both in the front seat, and this was where they had planned to hide out and sleep, so it's likely that they wouldn't have killed at this rest stop. Therefore, I feel we weren't in danger during this encounter. 
Had it been elsewhere, though, we may well have been.